0: You're listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. 2020 has seen the two largest wildfires in Colorado history, and over 600,000 acres have been burned across the Centennial State. Along with many of the obvious concerns that come with fires of such magnitude, additional concerns have been expressed towards the effects on wildlife. In this episode of Colorado Outdoors, we'll dive right into the pros and cons of wildfire as it relates to wildlife, aquatic life, and the health of our forests. Providing us with some context will be Senior Wildlife Biologist for CPW's Northeast Region, Shannon Schaller, Northeast Region Senior Aquatic Biologist, Jeff Spohn, and Casey Cooley, who is CPW's Forest Habitat Coordinator. Listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I'm your host, Mark Johnson. The podcast is powered by Great Outdoors Colorado. GOCO invests a portion of Colorado lottery proceeds to help preserve and enhance the state's parks, trails, wildlife, rivers, and open spaces. Its independent board awards competitive grants to local governments and land trusts and makes investments through Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Created when voters approved a constitutional amendment back in 1992, GOCO has committed more than $1.2 billion in lottery proceeds to more than 5,200 projects in all 64 counties without any tax dollars Support. Well, sadly, wildfires have been a huge story here in the state of Colorado for much of the fire season, as literally hundreds of thousands of acres have been affected. Now, the good news is, a few days before this recording, Mother Nature helped out with some cold weather and a bit of snow falling over much of the affected areas. Frequently, when we think about wildfires, we think of the effects on human life, private property. Recently, a number of mountain towns have been affected, and certainly the safety of the men and women who are out there fighting the blaze. However, overlooked on occasion is the effects on wildlife, Joining us now on Colorado Outdoors, powered by Great Outdoors Colorado, to talk about that very topic is Shannon Schaller, Senior Wildlife Biologist for CPW's Northeast Region. Shannon, thanks for being with us. Uh, As we're all paying attention to the general news uh, about these blazes across the state, my, my guess would be that you're really focused on the wildlife and the impact it's having. Oh,
1: thank you for having me. Yes, we're getting lots of questions from our public about what this will do to wildlife both in the short term and long term you know and then we also have hunting seasons going on right now so a lot a lot going on with the dynamic situation of how it impacts hunters but yes a lot of people concerned with people first but then second what about everything that lives in the forest as far such as wildlife
0: well tell us what happens i i'd imagine that wildlife has a pretty good Survival instinct. What, what do you see under circumstances like this for wildlife across the state when these fires hit?
1: Thankfully, they do have good survival instincts. You know, fires are natural and they've evolved with fire. And so, wildlife, for the most part, can hear and smell fire coming and can get out of the way. Um, depending on the speed at which fires go, which, as we know, the Each Troublesome Fire was a very rapid fire, um, there are unfortunately cases where some wildlife just cannot get out of the way and then. You think about populations of wildlife. You know, not everything is as mobile as the next animal, and so maybe the the less mobile or the older, the sick might not get out of there. And then, um, a fortunate thing though is that this time of year, when these fires are burning, we do have wildlife uh, that we don't have a lot of babies on the ground, which is a good Mm -hmm. thing. And so, um, from just being lucky for this time of year, we have animals that can get out of the way. But for the most part, they are fully adapted to survival the fittest and they get out of dodge and they don't care about the guy next to them, It's just get out of here. But (laughs) again, we don't really know what the the effects are on the ground until we can get in there and look, but hoping that those survival instincts have paid off for everything on the landscape.
0: Yeah, so when you get to the back end of a fire and you're allowed to go in and, and take a look, what are you looking for? What do you normally find when you walk into these fire zones?
1: Yeah, just in talking to some of our staff, you know, we have seen some mortality from bigger wildlife already that just couldn't get out of the fires for whatever reason. Um, in the short term, it's the immediate damage, right? We're looking for either injured animals that may need to be euthanized, um, the you know, the mortality that occurred from the fires, and then for the long term, we're looking at how hot did that fire burn? You know, what's the rate at which that vegetation will recover? Because In the long term, fires can be very beneficial for wildlife. So we're looking at, instead of the immediate impact. um, We have radio collars out on the landscape for animals in these areas, both deer and elk. And so we are looking at some things from just the computer to see how fires are impacting wildlife. And if you take the Cameron Peak fire, for instance, we have some radio collared elk there. And we have elk that have been using the the landscape within that fire perimeter and so it's just kind of interesting to see what their behavior is and what their long-term impacts are going to be.
0: Hmm. And obviously the impacts of fire in, in many respects are obviously tragic but but also a little bit if I read between the lines what you're saying it, it can be educational for what you folks are doing at CPW in terms of the study of wildlife correct?
1: Yeah there, there's a great opportunity to learn about um, forest practices right what what could we have done maybe better to prevent these fires, or what did we do right? And then we have opportunity to look at um, animal behavior pre-fire, because I told you we have radio collars on in the area of East Troublesome and Cameron Peak, so we'll, we'll be able to compare animal usage on the landscape pre-fire and then post-fire. And then we also have a great opportunity to look at the benefits from a vegetative standpoint and um, what can we do from a restoration standpoint or to see how these fires did actually rejuvenate a landscape that maybe the understory was kind of choked out and this will be a benefit in the long run. So a lot to be learned, which is exciting from that standpoint.
0: Yeah, What you're talking about there is always fascinating to me because, we as humans, when we watch a wildfire, when we think of the devastation, the loss, and what you just touched on, I, I think is kind of fascinating from a wildlife perspective. And, and that is, you know, fires are kind of a natural part of of the Earth's existence, and wildlife have dealt with them uh, for centuries. And the benefits that come out of this, in terms of habitat and those kind of things, talk a bit more to that, that idea.
1: Yeah. That- it is. It's a great opportunity for the forest to do what it should do naturally. Um, we have the Hayman fire that we can kind of use as a as a case study to to learn about how animals rebound and what happens after a fire is. You get this early successional stage in a forest. So all of a sudden, the the ground under the trees get exposed sunlight and much needed nutrients. You know, as as a forest grows older and the canopy gets tighter, that grass and forbs and shrubs in the forest may not get the needed nutrients so basically it gives it a shot of energy as far as sunlight and nutrients to really expand both forage quality and quantity and wildlife are like magnets to post fire areas in a lot of cases because all of a sudden what wasn't growing is now growing in abundance so it's just a a great example of how a natural process benefits wildlife and certain species even more are attracted to those early successional stages like moose in particular really like those early successional forests that have been impacted by fires or logging and that type of thing
0: you mentioned the cameron peak fire and of course the the calwood fire and as big as they become but i guess i've got a question about something like the east troublesome fire which blew up so incredibly fast uh, you, you talked about animals having the ability to survive and get out of there, but I would imagine that that is the type of fire that could be devastating because of how quickly it exploded and then uh, enveloped uh, so much acreage.
1: Right. I mean, I I know that there are some wildlife species that probably just got trapped and, and couldn't get out of there. I. Like I said, I haven't heard any real detailed accounts from a wildlife perspective what the landscape is. I think we're still just trying to come to grasp this with what happened for people. Um, but nothing catastrophic, no indications yet at losing any large, you know, block, you know, large populations of animals. But if you compare the East Troublesome to the Cameron Peak, I do think from a mortality standpoint or just instant impact to wildlife, the troublesome one has has the potential to be more um, deadly to wildlife because of the rate at which it moves, Whereas the Cameron Peak fire has been going on for four months and wildlife can just continually move out of that area and and get to refuge easier.
0: Shannon, something you touched on a moment ago, you made reference to the hunting season and and how uh, that is being affected right now. Is there any plans or are there some thoughts with CPW about altering the hunting season because the way it is being affected by so many acres being covered in fire?
1: Yes, we've been working on that extensively since some of these bigger fires went, like the Cameron Peak. We've been offering refunds to hunters outside of our normal refund policy, and we're trying to keep up with hunters' ability to actually have access to lands. which, you know, it may not be that the animals are gone. It just may be that they don't have access to get to it, trying to take everything into account, which is you know, our need to manage wildlife populations through harvest and the strong desire by the public to get out and hunt, which right now everyone could use a little, you know, outside mental health, but then balancing that with their ability to have a safe and successful hunt. And there are just some some seasons and access points that aren't going to happen. So we've offered refunds. I mean, The best way to really understand the the breadth of what we're offering to hunters to help them out is through our website, and that's constantly being updated with new locations that uh, we are offering refunds. We're trying to help hunters out and stay on top of the most current information is our way we're trying to balance everything out.
0: Well, we'll certainly check out the website, and uh, undoubtedly when fires hit the state of Colorado, it affects many different avenues of the state, and this is certainly one of them. Shannon, we really appreciate the time. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for
0: having me. Well, now let's turn our attention to what all the fire activity means for our waterways throughout the state of Colorado. you want Joining us here for a few minutes is Jeff Spohn, Senior Aquatic Biologist for CPW's Northeast Region. Jeff, welcome to Colorado Outdoors Podcast. I know there's no question that all this fire activity is having some, you know, obviously wide ranging effects on the state, and undoubtedly the waterways are part of that equation, correct?
2: Yeah, I mean, not specifically currently that we're aware of, but what happens after a fire, um, you know, burns through and gets suppressed, it's usually the monsoons or heavy snowpack that happens um, after the event where um, the aquatic environment sees the impacts from a fire.
0: So, what are the first things that ultimately, when we get down the road here, that you guys are going to be looking at? I mean, you know, sediment coming into drainages, that kind of thing, or where, where do you start ultimately when you kind of take a peek at it?
2: You know, basically, what it's going to come down to is how um, was in a specific drainage, and then where the the moisture hit, because basically, you know, you get these these valleys, these watersheds that have burned, and then you get um, you know a rain event or a snow event, and then that moisture filters down to a drainage.
0: And then when it comes to water quality and being a fly fisherman, I'm always thinking about that. Where does that come into the equation, and and, and how much generally have you found that that can be affected by by a fire event like this? It it can be
2: pretty significant. Um, My my experience is from the 2002 Hayman fire. I was the local aquatic biologist during that time, and you know we didn't see any impacts since 2002. But once we started seeing the monsoon systems in 2003, that's where things really, um, you know, started impacting the,
0: the aquatic wildlife. By what you're talking about, are you talking about a, a loss of life or what, what exactly?
2: We saw a significant impact to, um, you know, the brown trout and rainbow trout that uh, persisted before the Hayman, you know, upstream of Cheeseman Reservoir, downstream at, you know, Deckers, you know, all the way basically to Strontia Springs Reservoir.
0: So are, are there benefits, though, on the flip side of that? Are there some benefits? Can there be... Uh, maybe new habitat created from debris, those kind of things that also come out of a fire?
3: From, from a sport fishery perspective, um, I would say it's, it's a negative
2: impact um, pretty much all around. However, um, what we're looking at from the Cameron Peak Fire is there's areas that have burned that may allow us to, um, you know, instead of reclaiming the fisheries for native species, Know, the greenback cutthroat trout, we're looking at potential areas where that have burned that may create a fish kill from, you know, brown trout, rip trout, rainbow trout that we can potentially reintroduce the native um, and federally uh, threatened greenback cutthroat trout. That would be one significant benefit.
0: So once you get to the point where you're, and maybe you can go back to your history with the Hayman fire. Once you realize what the problem is, how it's being effective, what's the process of recovery and, and revitalization efforts?
2: It's going to be a little bit different with the Cameron Peak Fire. Uh, the one benefit of the Heymans was we had Cheeseman Reservoir and Strontia Springs Reservoir, which are on-channel reservoirs that kind of acted as a bathtub to collect the sediment and debris from the hayman and then had refugees downstream. Okay. Um, on the pooter, we don't have that. Um, so it's, you know, the, the vastness of the Cameron Peak fire impacts to the pooter. You know, we, don't, we, we can't draw an analogy. Um, I will tell you, however, that the simple fact of what we did with the Hayman is worked with water providers. Denver Water and Aurora to once the um, debris and sediment that was impacting water quality moved through the system. We just got a lot of other sediment that impacted spawning habitat, things like that. Once we started rebuilding the fishery, we were able to work with those water providers to provide us flows to flush the system out, to, you know, move the fine particles out of the system so fish could have fine habitat, pool habitat, things like that. I just I don't see that happening with
0: with the pooter. Okay. So what do we know at, at this point? Have you, have you been able to take any baseline population samples of the pooter at this point, or, or is it too early to tell?
2: Yep. The crews were out last week um, taking fish um you know, fishery samples on densities, population, species composition, just so we have another data point. Um, the nice thing about the pooter, to my knowledge, we've got, you know, a vast data set of what that fishery looks like, you know, over the last 20 years. And we'll be able to, you know, at least tell when, when and if impact happen, how significant they are, as long as staff can... Um, safely get into the system, you know, next fall, based on, you know, what happens
0: this this next runoff and months and seasons. Jeff, one of the sad realities, uh, or I guess, uh, you know, just realities we have to accept here in the state of Colorado is we deal with wildfires. And, and I'm wondering from a, a waterway standpoint, and maybe this is a massive question to answer, but are there things that, that we can do ahead of time that are preventative to help the waterways when, when fire events do happen?
2: Yeah. It, you know, and this is not in CPW's jurisdiction per se, because most of that fire is burned um, on the forest, but, you know, trying to get vegetation established. Um, one thing that we learned from the Haymans, um is even once vegetation was established, though, there was so much sediment in the tributaries um, that... You know every time it rained or had a big snow event we kept seeing sediment entering the plat um so just getting basically you know vegetation established that you know can slow down the velocity of the rain event um and keep the soil intact um you know is, is probably the most
0: Well, certainly there's uh, a lot of work for uh, folks like you in the future here as you're looking down the road at the effects of all the fires we've uh, sustained here in the state of Colorado. Hey, Jeff, we really appreciate the time and your insights. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's time to talk about the effects of these fires and what it means moving forward here in the state. Joining us now is Casey Cooley, Colorado Parks and Wildlife Forest Habitat Coordinator. Casey, welcome to Colorado Outdoors. I have to think that what we're witnessing this wildfire season, we're looking at really an historic set of circumstances in your world right now, aren't we?
3: Yeah, Mark. That's true. Uh, this year has been kind of a an extraordinary year when it when it relates to wildfires. I mean, it's not it's not unheard of to have some fires in Colorado, but this year the the size of them and and the uh, the intensity of them has definitely kind of opened people's eyes. Uh, we've we've had a quite a year so far, so and it's still kind of going. So
0: yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was good to get a little cold weather and some precip here over the last few days to help out at least a little bit. You know, I think when the general public starts thinking about fires, they understand they're going to be set by natural causes, sometimes human causes. But, but to the, the ecological drivers, in terms of why these seem to be so intense, can, can you speak to that a little bit? I mean, are we, are we talking about drought? Are we talking about insects? What exactly has kind of uh, driven this to be as bad as it's been this year?
3: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit or a combination of all of those things. You know, uh, when we talk about ecological drivers in the forest, we're talking about those things that are naturally occurring that just exacerbate things a little bit. Um, and so fire obviously historically has been on this landscape for a long time. Um, you know, historically though, it was, it was depending on which forest type you're talking about, uh, it was more lower intensity, more frequent. Fires uh, than what are occurring now. So, you know, over the past 150 years or so, through the through our land use decision making and stuff like that, um, we've we've kind of set the stage for having these larger scale fires that are that are uh, of higher severity, um, and so. You know, when we talk about uh, other ecological drivers like insect and disease and drought and climate change and those kinds of things, those are all things that are contributing uh, to uh, what we're seeing on the landscape now. But you know, largely, some of uh, what we can what we can explain this to is is 150 years of uh, fire suppression and um, allowing uh, the natural forest to. Uh, become more dense with more trees and become more homogenized uh, as far as forest structure goes, uh, which really leads to those fires, um, you know, getting up into canopies and and, and making long runs and and those kinds of things because we have this continuity of fuel. So, you know, it's important to talk about those drivers because those are the things that we, we try to you know, we try to uh, educate people about and get them to understand that the forest that they're looking at now is a forest that um, is not uh, acting naturally because we are we are um, manipulating those drivers with fire suppression mm-hmm. and, and those kinds
0: of things. So then that would then kind of lead us to active forest management and, and how then we can kind of help navigate that or manage that in some form, correct? And and what are the processes that that, uh, we can utilize in order to make things a little bit safer and and manage uh, the forest a little bit better from a fire perspective?
3: Sure. So active forest management is something that we definitely uh, like to bring up and talk about because it's something that... We can do, um, but you know. Obviously, what we're talking about when we talk about active forest management is we're talking about uh, logging and mechanical treatment that thin the forest and, and thin it to, you know, more of something. To restore the forest structure. There, um, we also talk about things like prescribed fire and um, being able to emulate uh, fire on the landscape that would have been occurring naturally if 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 we weren't here. And so, you know, we. We in the forestry world, we, we, we like to uh, promote active forest management as something that helps us try to break up the continuity of that canopy of the forest and that kind of thing with the idea that that will help us in a fire situation, in a wildfire situation where we just don't have this continuity of fuels that once the wind gets up and starts driving that fire, we have no real control uh, to that fire. And so, what we try to promote is, is doing active forest management. Uh, and what we're ultimately trying to do is, we're trying to restore that forest structure in such a way that natural fire could occur on the landscape, but it wouldn't be as devastating and, and impactful as it is. Like we're seeing now today.
0: So Casey, what can we do from a process standpoint to maybe help alleviate this fires? And if there are people out there that are interested in, in coming alongside and helping out, are there, are there opportunities for folks to maybe uh, get on board and help out in that process?
3: Sure. Yeah, Mark, I think one of the most important things that we can do is just uh, be aware of uh, how important active forest management is for our public lands and our forests here in Colorado. and uh, And and understand and support uh, the federal agencies and the state agencies and the the county open spaces and stuff like that when when they're doing or trying to do active forest management. You know, for instance, there's a lot of uh, nonprofit groups out there and a lot of collaborative groups out there that are trying to look at things more at a landscape scale and trying to address things more. Like from a watershed and and what I mean by that is it's it's not only the natural resource professionals or the wildlife biologists and those kinds of things, but it's actually the general public can get involved in this as well when you're interacting with these landscape scale collaboratives like the there's one on the front range called the front range round table, and that's that's just an open group that talks about forest restoration and and forest management and and how to try to address and be proactive about, uh, these wildfire situations and that kind of thing. There's, there's a whole host of those types of groups out there around the state that, you know, if, if people are interested in getting involved in, 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 uh, Having their voices heard about you know public lands and the public trust, um, I would recommend getting in, involved with those types of groups that uh, talk about this stuff on a day to day basis, and and they're there with the the people actually doing the work, like the Forest Service, United States Forest Service, and the Colorado State Forest Service, and and Parks and Wildlife, and and agencies
0: like that. Well, it's always such a dramatic time for those of us here in the state of Colorado. Why don't we see these kind of uh, you know monster fires come through when it's all said and done, there's always an assessment that goes on. You know, we talked earlier with Shannon Schaller. She was talking about from a wildlife perspective going in and assessing. What about post-fire rehabilitation and how you assess things once you're able to get in there when all the fires are put out? What what does that process entail?
3: Yeah, so um, depending on the fire severity and the size of it, uh, there's sometimes where we we don't do anything if it burned um, in uh, a lower intensity or lower severity. We typically let the uh, the environment and the land kind of take care of itself. The seed sources are there to grow new grasses and shrubs, and if it hasn't consumed every single thing out there on the landscape, there's still pockets of green trees to feed in areas and, and that kind of thing. Um, and in situations where there are large uh highly severe burns, uh they have uh the federal government has the ability to go in there and kinda of do a triage of what areas uh are most su- susceptible to um to like erosion and sedimentation and that kind of thing. And so that's what's referred to as a bear team and those teams are set up. They have individual, uh, species experts on them and, and, and that kind of thing. And they go around the fire and, and they look for those areas that are highly, uh, highly burned or high severity burn or really steep slopes or right next to a drainage and those kinds of things. And they just prioritize those areas to, to try to stabilize the soil, try to, uh, break up that hydrophobic soil and, um, and get things growing again to stabilize stuff, to reduce sedimentation and, and reduce stuff getting into our streams and in our waterways and our water supplies.
0: Well, it certainly is going to be an ongoing story and, and something we won't have completely wrapped up, obviously, for quite some time. But, Casey, we certainly appreciate your insights and all your thoughts on uh, what we're witnessing here in the state. Sure, no problem. Glad to help. Great to get some insights as to the effects this historic wildfire season has had and will continue to have on our state from some of our experts at Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Our thanks to Shannon Schaller, Jeff Spohn, and Casey Cooley for joining us. Remember, for anything and everything pertaining to Colorado Parks and Wildlife, go to our website at cpw.state.co.us. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Outdoors, powered by Great Outdoors Colorado. I'm your host, Mark Johnson. Until next time, get out and enjoy the great outdoors in our beautiful state of Colorado. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is a nationally recognized leader in conservation, outdoor recreation, and wildlife management. The agency manages 42 state parks, 960-plus species of wildlife in Colorado, more than 350 state wildlife areas, and a host of recreational programs from hunting and fishing to the state's trails program, boat registration, snowmobiles, off-highway vehicles, and more. All of its management is in perpetuity for the enjoyment of Coloradans and its visitors.